So you heard Caleb read the first 20 verses of Mark chapter 1. We're going to be in Mark chapter 1 today, if you hadn't guessed. So still working through the first uh, chapter of the book of Mark. We started this series four or five weeks ago. uh, And this morning we're going to look at following Jesus' baptism the next two verses. That's as far as we're going to get today is Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Um, If you are here for the first time, you haven't been here maybe since we started the book of Mark, I just want to let you know that we have scripture journals available to you. Uh, I see a few out on these black tables on either side of the room. I think we probably have some at the connect table in the back of the room as well. Those are free. All the scripture journal is, it's nothing, you don't have to use it, but if you'd like to, uh, it has scripture printed on one page and then it has blank lines for you if you want to take notes. Just a little more space to work with uh, than maybe just the margins of your Bible or whatever other note-taking strategy that you typically use. You're welcome to take one with you today. You can get up and grab one now. You can wait till the service is over, whatever you want to do. We just ask that you put your name in it, add an email or a phone number because you will inevitably leave it somewhere and we want to get it back to you so that you can uh, take advantage of it and get some notes written down. I also want to say thank you to Tom Anderson who is here uh, with the North American Mission Board to explore church replanting. Uh, I asked Tom to preach last Sunday on extremely short notice. I had bronchitis. My family was down with bronchitis and uh, strep throat both in our house at once. So we got the bacterial and the viral all at one time. That's sort of our back to school annual celebration, right? Is, uh, yeah, your kids go back to school and you might as well have just licked all the doorknobs by the time they come home, right? You're, you're going to get exposed. So uh, we're feeling better. Everything's going good now. I just want to say thanks to Tom. He's not in the room today, but I appreciated his willingness to step in for me at the last minute. That is not easy to do. Uh, I think if you can just imagine having to put yourself up here with very little prior experience, the nerves that you would immediately feel, um, and I, I felt that he did an admirable job of sharing some of his and his wife's journey from their career in the army to church replanting in Alaska. A week before that, we looked at Jesus' baptism, and we took a look at John's account, Matthew's account, and Mark's account. We were specifically in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Um, As the drama unfolded at the edge of the Jordan River, we said that Jesus was baptized for two reasons, at least two reasons. First, in order to become more like us, in order to connect with and and become uh, relatable to and have empathy for people like us who need the kind of change of heart and mind that baptism represents. And then second, in order to make us more like him. Um, Jesus' baptism was the perfect, excuse me, was the first public act of obedience to God the Father in his ministry, and it set the pace for the next three years of Jesus' life, as he only did what God the Father told him to do. So I want to call back to the last verse that we looked at two weeks ago, last time we were in Mark. If you have your scripture journal, your Bible, take a look at Mark chapter 1, verse 11. We're going to read that for context, and then we'll read through uh, the verses that pertain to our study this morning. Mark says this, A voice came from heaven and said, You are my beloved, my son. With you I am well pleased. So this is the end of Jesus' baptism. He comes up out of the water. There's this moment where he and John the Baptist can see into heaven. They hear the audible voice of God the Father. They see the Spirit of God. He looks something like a dove, more or less, descends down upon Jesus and rests in a way that's meaningful, comforting to both Jesus and John. And then right away, the Spirit of God within Jesus moves him out into the wild into the undomesticated hills and mountains that surround the city of Jerusalem. Mark says as much in verse 12. Let's keep reading. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, in Mark's gospel, which is just one of four different accounts that we get of Jesus' ministry, we get the short version. And I think that's because if you can remember back to some of our motifs that appear in the book of Mark, 
what Mark is telling is really Peter's experience. Peter the disciple, Peter who would go on to be an apostle and a church planter and kind of rule over and lead the Jewish arm of the church for the first maybe 30 or 40 years of its life. Peter had been walking through Rome when he met this guy, Mark. And he said to Mark, Mark, follow me, become my disciple, and I will show you the way of Jesus. I will lead you to the one who leads my life. And Mark said, okay, I will. And so close to the end of Peter's life, the church was worried that when Peter died, his account of Jesus' life would die with him, that nobody would have access to these stories, these things that were so transformative for people. Every time Peter would preach, he would tell these stories. And so Mark was commissioned to write down everything that he could remember that Peter had told him. Now, what's interesting to me is the account of Jesus' temptation in Mark is so short, I believe, because Peter wasn't on the scene yet. I don't think Peter was there the day that Jesus was baptized. I certainly don't think Peter went with Jesus into the wilderness. Jesus does not call Simon Peter off of his boat and away from his nets until a few verses later. So because Jesus had not selected Peter yet as an apprentice, I think that Peter is summarizing what Jesus must have told his disciples happened in those 40 days. So I want to just ask you a rhetorical question. I think this is interesting, and I want to encourage you to really kind of engage with the Bible this way. How do you think Jesus dropped this news on the disciples? None of them were there. We don't have a narrative account of him sitting down and teaching general crowds of people that he was tempted. So I just think it's interesting to think about how how kind of in passing, maybe over lunch or dinner one night, did Jesus bring up casually, offhand, that he had had this wrestling match with the devil in the desert for 40 days. It's important enough that it gets included in each of the Gospels, but it doesn't seem to be so emphatic or necessary to understand that Jesus makes it part of his teaching ministry. Maybe the disciples and Jesus were walking between towns one day, and Jesus just mentioned offhand that, oh, that hill over there, that's where I grappled with God's enemy that time. And the disciples are like, you did what now? Is this what you do when you walk away and we're sleeping at night? You go in the desert and fight demons? What is, what is going on here? We don't really know. We don't need to know. But I like that within the lack of, of the account, there's room for any number of situations in which Jesus' first apprentices found out about this sort of cosmic hell in a cell, if you know what I'm talking about, if you're into wrestling, that Jesus went through. Now, we don't know how the disciples found out about the 40 days, but we do know that Matthew, the disciple, so not Mark, whose book we're reading now, but Matthew, another disciple, he felt like he had enough detail to be able to actually quote both Jesus and God's enemy verbatim. So I want to read you Matthew's version of the story. This comes from the fourth chapter of Matthew's gospel, beginning in verse 1. Then Jesus, this is after the, the baptism, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness, a wild place or a desolate place, to be tempted by the accuser. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. I bet he was. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, then you should command these stones to become loaves of bread. So God's enemy knows that Jesus is hungry, and he's like, hey, use your power to feed yourself. Why not? You and I might read that and go, why is that such a big deal? Why would that be negative? Well, Jesus responds. Jesus answers and says, it is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, Jesus is saying to the accuser, The urges of my body are not the most important part of me. Now, why does that matter? Well, because people like you and I live like the urges of our body are the most important part of us. It's the story of human history. It's the very thing that led Adam and Eve away from God all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. The desire to have a thing they don't have, to be a person that they're not, to look away from their identity into this future sort of what-if possible version of themselves. And Satan does to Jesus what he does to every other person. He dangles in front of his face the thing that he thinks that Jesus wants the most. You're hungry, huh? 
I think of Esau, the story of Jacob and Esau in the book of Genesis, when Esau gives away two-thirds of his father's property, the birthright, and frankly, the, the lineage of, of Jesus is given away over a bowl of soup because of how hungry that brother is. This is that moment relived. Jesus says, the word of God will sustain me. Verse five, then the accuser's not done. The accuser took him to the holy city, that's Jerusalem, and he set Jesus down at the top of the temple, which is extremely dramatic. And he said to Jesus, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. Just, just jump. Let's, let's all find out together. Everybody's gathered here. People will look up and see you. This will be amazing, right? What a great entrance. This is sort of like a, a Chris Angel or David Blaine moment for you. You'll be on the news. Everybody will be retweeting you. This, is, this could be awesome for you. Jump. Because it's written that he who comes will command his angels concerning you or on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. The accuser is saying, just use your power to get what you want. Why not? Jesus answers him and says, again, it is written, Satan, if you knew the Bible, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Even I will not test God the Father with something petty, something trivial, just to prove that he can do what he says he can do. Again, and this is the final time, the accuser took him to a very high mountain, I believe this is figurative language, that they were able to look over all of the earth. He showed Jesus all of the kingdoms of the world, and he showed him the glory of those kingdoms. What was amazing about them? The way that the people in those kingdoms looked at their kings and queens with love, with worship, with the kind of adoration that we have for celebrities and sports heroes. He said to Jesus, all of these I will give to you. Here's what you have to do. Just worship me. Just sing me one verse of one song. That's all it takes. Just acknowledge what I already know about myself, that I'm really the best, the most beautiful, the most glorious, the greatest. Just say it once, and everything I have is yours. Finally, Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. It's done. The time for the tempting was over. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then the accuser left him. And behold, angels came and we're ministering to Jesus. Now when I read this, I'm just gonna shoot you straight here. This reads a lot like a Greek mythology. I think it really happened. I believe it, it's in the Bible. I think it's literally true. But I begin to ask myself, why? Why does this need to happen? Do we need to know whether or not Jesus can resist the devil? Do we really wonder at any point when we look at the rest of his ministry if there was any chance in the world that God's enemy was gonna take Jesus down? He certainly doesn't seem to be under threat at any point. Every time Jesus encounters a demon, every time he encounters the influence of hell, every time he encounters human sinfulness, guilt, wickedness, pain, death, disease, Jesus doesn't even hesitate. He casts it out. He banishes it. He runs it off. So why do we need this story? Why is this a necessary part of Jesus' life? Why not just go from the baptism right into Jerusalem, open the scroll, read Isaiah, and begin the ministry? Why do we need to see this? I think it's a good story. I think it's an interesting story, but there has to be more to it than that. It's not just about the struggle between good and evil. This isn't just a kind of a dualistic yin and yang explanation of how bad things happen or where bad things come from. Jesus is always defeating evil left and right in his ministry. As I said earlier, he, he locks out demons from harassing people. He repairs broken bodies and minds. He even lifts the guilt and shame of evil from people's souls. We don't need to know about the 40 days in order to understand that Jesus conquers death and evil. Now, another popular argument is that we need this story to introduce the accuser. 
that without God's enemy being named and showing up on the scene, we never really know where these kinds of bad things come from when they show up throughout the rest of Jesus' story. We don't know why people are sick. We don't know why demons are afflicting people. We, we need to see the enemy, name him, almost sort of like a prequel to the movie that we're about to watch in order to understand what's going on. But I don't think that's true either. This is not the first time that we've encountered God's enemy or his demons in the Bible. It certainly won't be the last. And it's really not even a very good example of the full power of God's enemy. I mean, they basically just have a debate. That's all that happens. There's no physical conflict. There's no lightning bolts and fireballs and whatever you might visualize as happening in the spiritual realm when good and evil clash. John's first letter to the church, this is uh, from 1 John 5, explains that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So if we were going to pick a verse, if there was going to be something to insert into Jesus' story to really amplify how big and bad the devil is, you'd think that it would look like something like that. But that comes way later, after Jesus has already ascended. Um, in Luke's account of Jesus' temptation, he quotes God's enemy as saying this about the kingdoms and powers of the world. This is Luke 4. Jesus is with the devil. The devil says to Jesus, to you I will give all this authority, all of their glory, right? That's similar to what we just read in Matthew, but catch this. For it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. So kind of, this is where we kind of derive the idea that God's enemy is the prince of this world, that he's been cast down here and given the opportunity to sort of run roughshod over people and things. God's enemy is strong, but the Bible can make that clear without this story. And there is tension between Jesus and the accuser, but we should expect that. That's the story of the entire Bible. Here's the point to me. This is why I think we actually need these two verses in Mark. We really need our heart, our soul, our ability to follow Jesus, I think, in some degree, hinges upon the point of Jesus' temptation. It's to teach us that Jesus can do what no other person in human history has ever been able to do or has done since him, to fully resist the enemy of God. That's why we get the temptation. The temptation is not in there to teach us something about the cosmos. It's certainly not there to emphasize or amplify God's enemy and make sure that we know who to blame when things go wrong. It is, of course, a story that lifts up Jesus. It just does it in a way that maybe you and I miss, because a lot of times, because we know the whole Bible and we know how the gospel ends, we kind of go, well, the cross is really when Jesus conquered Satan, so we'll just wait for that part. That's the part that makes sense. We've studied that part. We read about it in all of Paul's writings. We get that one. But this is the beginning. I mean, this is as good a foreshadowing as you're ever going to get. Jesus goes blow for blow with God's enemy all the way to the hilt and doesn't budge an inch, and it's unique. It's the thing that Adam and Eve couldn't do. It's the thing none of the disciples could do, none of the patriarchs of the church, no apostle after Jesus left, no pope, no priest, no pastor, nobody has ever done what Jesus did. He looked the devil in the eye and he said, no. And it's not just the enemy who Jesus resists, it's all of the treasures of the enemy, the things that he dangles in front of the faces of humanity to try to lead us away from God and instead into our own destruction. Just as a couple of examples here, here are the kinds of things that Jesus is resisting. Jesus resists the allure of power. He resists the personal selfishness that comes from being hungry, right? The word hangry is not in the Bible, but Jesus is as close as we get right here, okay? 40 days without a Snickers is a long time. That's all I'm saying. He's weak, you would argue. Physically, he's positioned in a way where if you and I were in his shoes, we would be more likely than not to follow our own flesh, to pursue a thing that maybe wouldn't tempt us if we were well-rested and full and felt safe and loved and known. Jesus is unwilling to deny the image of God imprinted on his own humanity. Jesus and Jesus alone resists the enemy of God. Jesus will not be an accomplice in his own destruction. 
He will not please himself to death like you and I will. Maybe you don't know that about yourself. Given your own way, given your own experiences, given your family of origin, the negative things you've experienced, the stuff that's happened to you at church that makes you not want to be here or not trust people like me, given all of those circumstances unaddressed and unhealed by the Savior, you will eventually please yourself to death. You will. You will continue to chase things. It'll be something different. The older you get, it might be more polite or it might be easier to hide or it might be something that everybody in the church sort of quietly golf claps for even though we kind of all can tell that it's not really doing you any good. But you'll find a way. Either couched in Christian terms or out there in the world running wild, you will find a way to please yourself to death without Jesus. Jesus resists all of the personal selfishness that comes from isolation, even the psychological pressure of being lied to and manipulated. If I can quote Jesus seven chapters from now in Mark chapter 8, Jesus will not gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. That's what we're looking at right here. It's the thing that the disciples almost didn't catch. It goes past them over and over again. Every time Jesus teaches a parable, every time he leans in on power dynamics and the poor and the rich and those who have opportunities and those who don't and those who are sick and those who are well, the thing that he's drawing into, into clear view for us is that there is a way of life that says no to you so that you can say yes to everybody else. That's the point. And they don't get it, but it's the beginning for him. It's the origin of his ministry is walking through this. So in case I've been opaque at all, here's the big idea that I want you to embrace from Mark's account of Jesus' temptation. After 40 days in the wilderness, Jesus was not at his weakest. After 40 days in the wilderness, Jesus was actually at his strongest. His spiritual strongest. The way of Jesus gathers strength from spiritual discipline. I want you to catch that. That's the big paradigm shift for you today. That's the point that you ought to put in your notes if you're taking notes. That the way of Jesus gathers strength from spiritual discipline. It gathers strength from the kind of activities and practices that sometimes sound to you and I like mysticism. Or, or just wastes of time, maybe. Um, this is not probably what you want to hear today, that the way of Jesus, the way into spiritual strength is, is unlike the way into worldly strength. Um, we oftentimes hope to get spiritually strong by spiritualizing things that we already know how to do, uh, things that we're comfortable with, things that maybe make real pragmatic sense to us, um, like strengthening our apologetics. In the last hundred years of the church, there's been, uh, in my opinion, an inappropriate overemphasis on apologetics. Uh, we want to increase our spiritual strength by memorizing the Apostle Paul's lists of sin so that we can quote them at our enemies. That's not the way of Jesus. It's not wrong to understand the philosophical reasons why our faith functions the way that it does and who God is and who we are and how the Bible and history and archaeology and science actually build out the same narrative if we take a look at the facts. None of that is bad, but that is not the way into spiritual strength. We want to grow in spiritual strength by being busy in the life of the church by running more programs, by hosting more events, by filling our calendars up with things to do in Jesus' name. And yet, when we look at the life of Jesus, he spends the first 40 days of his ministry basically doing what we would call nothing. You know how frustrated you would get with Jesus? I'll just give you an example here. In 2019, my wife and I moved here from Kentucky to help lead this church and to preach to you guys and be an elder and all that really good stuff that we love to do. If those first 40 days, my cell phone was off, you couldn't find me, and I was just praying somewhere, most Christians who I have met would have had a little bit of a problem with that. 
At the very, very least, you would have maybe questioned whether or not I should be on payroll if all I'm going to do is sit and pray. There's a paradigm shift here for you and I. Many of us have learned how to follow Jesus from people who are not very Christ-like, people who are great at business, people who are extremely efficient, very productive, who know how to grow big things and gather lots of people and brand stuff really cleverly and speak in a way that's fun but also a little bit challenging and sometimes funny and relatively winsome. That's all fine stuff if it's on the periphery. But the way of Jesus has to be the heartbeat of what we do. And in this particular example, Jesus does nothing public until he has been in private with God and facing literally his demons for 40 days. The preparation is necessary. It's key for us. In principle, we often expect to emulate the life of Jesus by doing almost nothing that Jesus did and instead doing all kinds of things that Jesus never did. And I believe that that misunderstanding of discipleship or of how we actually follow Jesus begins by misunderstanding where Jesus got his strength. So uh, on Tuesday, I read a really interesting story. I was on the Smithsonian website. I know I'm so exciting, right? Don't you guys you love to hear that, right? I just, I just trawl the Smithsonian website for fun at, at night. I do. I read a really great article. Um, Tuesday, the 30th of August, was the 118th anniversary of the 1904 Olympics. Uh, and particularly of the Olympic marathon. The Olympics that year were held in St. Louis, Missouri. It was the first time the United States had ever hosted the Olympics. Um, and the high point of those games, just so you have a reference point on how badly this whole thing went, the high point of the Olympics was a guy named uh, George Iser. He won six medals at the Olympics. Three of them were gold, all in gymnastics, and he did that with a wooden leg. Yeah, so you could argue either that's sort of the best that gymnastics could ever be, or maybe not, maybe it's the worst, I don't know. So the marathon that year is especially notorious in sports history. You can see here on the screen, these are the 32 men who lined up that August 30th, 1904 in St. Louis to run the Olympic marathon. Uh, the race began at 3.03 p.m., uh, and we actually have newspaper quotes from that time. I'm going to read to you some excerpts from this great article that I read by Karen Abbott on the Smithsonian Magazine website. Okay. So on August 30th, 3.03 p.m., the men begin. The starting gun is shot, and heat and humidity soared into the 90s. The, the, the mile course at that point was 24.85 miles. It was non-standardized. Every time they ran the marathon, it was a different length, which is crazy. And one official over the race was quoted in a newspaper as saying it was the most difficult uh, race that a human being has ever been asked to run. Uh, it wound across roads inches deep in dust. They recorded at 1.4 inches of dust on the road, like sand. Like if you guys have hiked in the Chugach, and you know when you hit scree, that, those tiny little rocks that just sort of disappear out from under your feet and swallow you up like quicksand, that's what these guys are running in, except it's ultra-fine dust. Cars carrying coaches, carrying physicians, motored alongside the runners, kicking the dust up and launching coughing spells. So we have a shot here of an old car and people just standing on the side of the road. There's a domestic fence. There's a guy on a bicycle. This is the big Olympic race. Uh, a guy named William Garcia from California almost died. Uh, he collapsed on the side of the road and was hospitalized with internal hemorrhaging because the dust that he was breathing in had coated his esophagus and the lining of his stomach and had shredded those organs because he was not very fast. So he was right behind a car. He was just running behind the car, just breathing in dust to the point that he passed out. Um, another guy named Lin Tao, who had come from South Africa to run in this race barefoot, uh, he was chased a mile off course by wild dogs at one point. He still came in fourth place, ran an extra mile with everybody else. Um, the guy who would go on to win the race, a guy named Thomas Hicks. I think this is an incredible story. 
Um, he was being supported by these two different coaches that were kind of taking turns piggybacking off of each other. One of them would meet him at mile two, the other one would drive down to mile four, mile six, mile ten, back and forth. So he gets to mile ten, and he's begging them for water, but they won't let him have any water. Uh, instead, they just give him this sponge of warm water that he can, like, suck on a little bit. Um, seven miles away from the finish, so after 21 miles of running, his coaches fed him a mixture of egg whites and strychnine, which is rat poison. Uh, yes, back then, they were really doing the performance-enhancing drug thing to the hilt. Just whatever, shoot a guy with a gun, beat him with rods, whatever you have to do to keep him running. So they would mix the rat poison in. It was a neural stimulant. It would wake him back up again because his body was trying not to die. And they would do this every three or four miles. By the end of the race, he was in so much pain and hallucinating that they began mixing brandy in with the egg whites and the strychnine. Because you know, when you have a problem, alcohol fixes it, right? No, never, ever, under any circumstances. Uh, interestingly, this is the first recorded use of uh, performance-enhancing drugs in the Olympics. So, he's high on strychnine, his body goes totally white, he begins to go limp, um, and so they, they like dump a bucket of water on him to wake him up, it doesn't work very well, um, and so here we go, this is a quote from Charles Lucas who was in charge of the race that year, he says, over the last two miles of the road, Hicks was running mechanically, like a well-oiled piece of machinery, which sounds really good, but listen to the rest of the quote, his eyes were dull and lusterless, the ashen color of his face and skin had deepened, his arms appeared as weights, well tied down, he could scarcely lift his legs, while his knees were almost stiff. And he began hallucinating. He thought that he was still at the beginning of the race. He started to cry in one of the accounts, begging them to let him finish. And his coaches just kept running alongside him and telling him, keep going, we're almost there, we're almost there. In the last mile, he started begging for food to eat, then he begged to lay down and take a nap. Uh, he was given even more brandy. Uh, he swallowed two more egg whites. And then as he walked up the first of the last two hills, he jogged down the second one, and on his way up the last hill into the stadium, he tried to run, but he couldn't move anymore. The newspaper account was him like in, in place, almost like he was on uh, an aerobic machine, sliding his feet back and forth in the dust and not moving. And he's like crying, and he's bent over, and his coaches are just trying to get him across the finish line. So here's what they decided to do. They picked him up. They got under either of his arms, that's this, and they carried the man a couple of inches off the ground, and he's still just kicking his feet in place and pumping his arms all the way in. They lay him on his back. He's still just like, doesn't know where he is. He's still running. Here's the insane thing. This had never happened before in the Olympics because the Olympics were like four years old at this point. The judges got together and had to decide, does this count as finishing the race or not? Can other people carry you across the finish line? As long as you're trying to run, can you still win the race? And they deliberated that he did win the race. He got the gold medal. It took four hours for him to regain consciousness, and he never ran another race again in his life. But he got the gold medal. Uh, it has been, uh, this has been called the, uh, the greatest tragedy in modern sports. They almost outlawed the marathon after this race. Like the, the judges got together months later and decided whether they could ever put human beings through this process again because of how terribly that it went. So crazy to me. The reason I'm telling you that story is this, okay? Because the Christians who I know so I am talking about some of you, I don't know all of you terribly well, but the Christians who I know, we live as if that is how Jesus finished the 40 days in the wilderness. We have this attitude that he was so worn down, he's gaunt, he's emaciated, he's hopped up on rat poison in the Holy Spirit, and he's just drug across the finish line, barely 
able to do the thing that he was supposed to do. Maybe even getting by on a technicality at the close of these 40 days. If I can be honest with you, I have thought of Jesus this way. I read words like fasting and hungry and wilderness and tempted, and all of those words in my mind equal weakness. But that's not the way the story reads. I picture Jesus sort of spiritually being carried across the finish line with his feet shuffling in the air, conquering the accuser on a technicality. And church, we have to rethink this. If we're going to understand the rest of what Jesus does in the book of Mark, we have to understand that he begins his ministry spiritually stronger than probably any of us will ever experience in our lives. We have to see Jesus clearly. Just a few verses later, Jesus uses the word repent to introduce the good news of the gospel, and repentance means we reevaluate how we think. This extends to how we think of Jesus. It is in his silence, away from the whiplash pace of the world, that he prepares to face the accuser. It's in his solitude, away from the emotions and the needs and the manipulations and expectations of other people, that he finds within himself the will to say no, even to his own flesh. It is by fasting and praying, denying his urges and communing with God the Father that he can see himself clearly. The disciplines of the deserted place do not tear Jesus down, they build him up. They do not wear him thin, they strengthen his spirit. They do not distract him from what really matters. Things like family and work and happiness or comfort, these are the things that come to mind for us. But instead they connect him to his truest identity as God's son. They push everything else out of the way. And they lead him into his greatest possible satisfaction as he starves out all of the cravings and urges that God's enemy has planned to capitalize on. Jesus in the wilderness is the best kind of foreshadowing. It is a microcosm of just how counterintuitive the way of Jesus in Mark's account really is. It is in solitude, in silence, in fasting, in prayer that Jesus himself, to quote Brother Lawrence of the resurrection, practiced the presence of God. The Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness, away from the world and toward the Father. And Jesus put himself there for you. He put himself where each of us will eventually go, face to face with our own deepest longings. He willingly embraced the most human traits that he had. Selfishness, short-sightedness, apathy, despair, greed, lust. These are the things that God's enemy tries to capitalize on, assuming that Jesus is at his weakest, that he'll ambush the Son of God and finally take God down off his throne once and for all. And then, even when the embodiment of temptation comes to him as a person, Satan, and offers him the things that he would have to go through the cross to earn, he says, no. So I'll leave you with this quote from John Stott. John Stott wrote a great book called The Cross of Christ. He says this. He says, The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God. He puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man, puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives that belong to God alone, but God accepts penalties that belong to man alone. Jesus went into the wilderness because the wilderness is where we are headed. It is where many of us are already, spiritually, right now, out of options, dehydrated, lost, in pain, disoriented, desperate. These things can be things that God's enemy capitalizes on in order to lead us deeper into the pit of selfishness. Oftentimes, it's that reasoning that insulates us, that wants to guard us from ever being seen as weak inside the church or out, but willingly embracing the weakness that's already there and then bringing it to God is the way of Jesus. 
These things can also be the bitter astringent that cuts through the poisonous magnetism of sex and money and power that present them to us literally everywhere we turn. The point of these two short verses in Mark is to get you introduced to the way of Jesus. To simply make you go, there's something about this that's different from what I would have expected. This is not the way every other king and president and CEO and superstar I've ever heard of has gone. This is different. This goes against the grain. Jesus in quiet, in loneliness, denying himself, real and honest and lengthy communication with God. It is out of these things that Jesus resists the enemy of God. And as we will see next week, it's out of those things he returns to the movement of human culture with news of God's kingdom close at hand. So you can consider this sort of a a softball for you on discipline, and especially on silence and solitude. In just a few weeks, we're going to discuss silence and solitude as the first of our studies on the practices of Jesus. I told you almost a year ago that this is where we're headed. We're almost there. I'm very excited. But until then, remember that the way of Jesus gathers strength from spiritual discipline. And so may we, very simply, like our rabbi Jesus, be willing to withdraw, retreat, and seek our Father first. May we go into the wilderness on purpose, prepared for what God will do, instead of being drugged there by our urges at the whims of ourself and God's enemy. Let me pray that for you, church. We'll finish in song today. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the example that you give us in Christ, both God as a, as a teacher, Lord Jesus, as, as one who knows us better than ourselves and can instruct us by example in what it looks like to navigate our lives differently from the way that we are prone to on our own, but also as our substitute, God, as our atoner, who's done for us in our place what we can't do. I hope, God, that our attitude this morning is not to come to you with our willpower turned all the way up to 10, hoping and believing the lie that somehow we'll get it right this time of our own ability, but instead to understand that this kind of life that follows you into the wilderness, that steps away from the breakneck pace of culture, the speed of communication, the sound and the needs and the manipulation of everything around us, that we can only do that if our starting point is to trust that there is grace and mercy for us from you. Limitless, endless grace, the depths of which we'll never understand. Jesus, we love you. We know that you love us and we come to you now out of that grace, out of that mercy, trusting that once again, you'll forgive us where we're wrong, you'll guide us where we've gotten off track, you'll be clear, you'll communicate where we ask. We pray, God, that you would just make clear for us what it looks like to be people of your way, not the way of ourselves and not the way of the world. We love you. We trust these things in Jesus' name. Amen.